Okay, everyone, welcome to ARCS Chat. My name is Robin Bauer Kilgo, and I'm the Association Manager for ARCS. Hey, everyone, it's John Robinette. I'm a freelance collections manager based in New York, in the New York City area, I guess I'll say. Uh, today, I'm working on site in New Jersey, so uh, I'm not fully in New York. Um, so today, as you hopefully have read, um, we will discuss rapid response collections and collecting. In April of 2020, the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History launched a task force charged with collecting and documenting the impact of COVID-19 on history and culture. At a moment's notice, they had to formulate a collecting strategy and begin the acquisition of objects and archives that documented a crisis that even now, two years later, continues to unfold. So as I mentioned, this is the reference point with which we'll discuss the uh, rapid, rapid response collections. I can't quite say that yet. Uh, obviously, I'm no expert in it. So uh, joining us to talk about the topic are Josh Gorman and Alexandra Lord. Uh, please introduce yourself. We'll start with uh, Alexandra. Hi, I'm Lexi Lord, and I'm the chair and curator in the Division of Medicine and Science at the National Museum of American History. And I'm Josh Gorman. I'm the museum's chief registrar and head of collections management. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, agreeing to uh, submit yourself to my my questions uh, and, and to the questions of everyone uh, involved in uh, watching today. So just as uh, Robin said, please uh, add your questions to the chat and we'll be um, reviewing them and, uh, and putting them out. And, um, you know, while we're getting settled in, please, uh, you know, write into the chat, let us know where you're, you're uh, joining us from. So I think the uh, most appropriate starting point for our conversation today is actually just defining rapid response collections. And, uh, and then we'll talk about uh, your role, your each individual role in, um, in actually working on a rapid response collection. Uh, who, who should take this one? So I'll suggest that Josh defines rapid response collecting, and then I'll talk a little bit about what we've been doing at the museum, if that makes sense to you, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, rapid response collecting is something, a uh, category of collecting that we've developed over many years to really encompass a, a responsive collecting event for uh, materials that are coming into the museum. We have a, a long history of doing collections, uh, collecting like this. I mean, back into the, uh, the 60s around the, uh, the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, museum curators were on the site, on the mall, uh, working with folks um, in the encampment on the mall and simultaneously collecting materials to bring them in. Um, our earliest collections management policy includes uh, this notion of collected for as a, a category of acquisition that um, was quote, objects that have been collected by authorized museum staff from conventions, rallies, marches, et cetera, and do not have apparent ownership or cost, uh, end quote. So we've used this category of collecting um, to accumulate materials that really are pulling uh, from events that are happening around the museum that are happening in Washington that our curators believe will um, provide the basis for future research and exhibitions. And over time, we've refined this collecting to, um, to really be a lot more intentional. 
So when we have events that occur uh, either locally or across the country, we're able to bring together teams of curators to one, decide whether or not this is something we want to collect specifically of, around, and then two, how we're going to approach that. And I think that tradition goes back to Hurricane Katrina, where um, I think staff recognized this was something that was a, a different instance of um, a natural disaster than we had seen in the past, that it was important that the museum collect around it. And really was very intentional about how we were going to send curators into the field to collect, what we were going to collect and what topics we would really try to embrace. Thanks so much for that intro. So we recognized pretty early on that COVID was going to be a seminal event. So the division that I oversee at the museum actually deals with the history of medicine and science. And so we are always monitoring public health events. And we know and knew that public health uh, experts had been saying for decades that we were long overdue for a pandemic. So we began thinking about collecting in January of 2020 and began to reach out to different groups that we knew and talk to them. And then in March, of course, things began to intensify rapidly. And that's when we began to realize this is going to be a major event that we need to bring in all of the divisions uh, that collect in the museum. And that includes our division of political and military history, our division of culture and community life, our division of work and industry. So we knew this was a story that was gonna cut across so that's when we created the task force and we sent out a PR statement asking Americans across the country to come to us with their suggestions of what we should be collecting. Um, and I have to say, we've had an amazing response and that response is continuing, um, but we've had well over um, 500 people contact us uh, with their suggestions. And we have consistently been in touch with other museums um, so that we can think about our collecting, what we should be collecting, but what might be better for a museum in, say, New Jersey, what might be a New Jersey story, um, not necessarily a national story, but an important story. So um, when we say we're doing rapid response collecting, um, it's really about a dialogue that we're having uh, with potential donors, uh, but also with other museums as well. And we're having this discussion across our museum and across disciplines. Wow, this is this is super interesting. This is so beyond my my comfort zone. Um, I'm going to approach this with uh, out of my own curiosity. So how so when you when you start working like in especially you, Josh, because it sounds like it, it maybe maybe you, Lexi, have more of a you're almost you're it almost seems like your job is is preparing for these types of collections. But Josh, like for someone with in, in registration, like is this something that you have to is this something that you train for? They they prepare you for when you when you take this position? Is this is this because you 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 mentioned that there is such a long tradition? Well, I think like any job, you you come into it and um, you learn the idiosyncrasies of the space, um, and and we certainly have ours. And and this collected for notion is one of them. This this idea that you know um, you can go a curator can go into the field and find something and make it a museum object without sort of a transfer of title. And um, 
And there's been refinement uh, of this notion over the years. And, and part of, I think, especially the last couple of years, I and um, colleagues in, in my office have done a lot of work researching old uh, collections management policies, looking through um, really old guidance and registrarial directives through the years to understand how we can build a collection uh, when we're really just picking something up and, mm -hmm. and understanding, okay, how can we document this in a way that um, conforms with best practice that uh, really applies a risk assessment and, and establishes a basis for possession that is unlikely to be challenged or have an adverse finding if there's uh, someone contradicting it. And we've, we've really landed uh, most recently uh, with our most recent uh, policy guidance on the notion that if you collect something um, in these manners, and, and this is not everything that comes in through the rapid response collecting. I mean, a lot of what Lexi's talking about has to do with real intentional reaching out to people and, and building a donor relationship very similar to, to most of our collecting. Um, but those no, those things, when we go out and you're just, you're really, you're finding things. And we, we really seek um, to find things that are freely available to the public. Uh, that's sort of a baseline for our collected four category, that it's something that it's, um, it's not available to us just because we're coming in from the Smithsonian. Uh, frequently, these are it's abandoned materials uh, that exist just out in the world. Um, that it was sort of the quiet. opposite of what most collections are, right? It's the opposite exactly. of scarcity, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really um, it's selecting materials from abundance with the expectation that it still contributes to our understanding of an event, what we believe in, you know, decades from now will be material that historians will rely upon in order to understand an event and to uh, demonstrate the, you know, the humanity of history in exhibition spaces. So that it's freely available to the public that we're not getting these materials because we're with the Smithsonian um, and, or that materials are uh, in the public domain. Wow. So there's, there's so much to address there. I mean, um, you're, you're actively seeking things that are so commonly available. It just seems like that is a recipe for acquiring too much stuff. Is there, is there such thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, what, what's the delineation? I mean, is there, there must be a, a criteria, of course, um, of, of what enters and what doesn't in order to prevent just acquiring everything. Oh, of course. And I, I think that has to do with the, uh, the collaboration across the space. And, and Lexi can definitely speak to this. I apologize. Uh, something strange happened and my computer suddenly shut down, which I think is always a sign that historians should not mess with technology. I didn't know what was happening. Um, so in terms of the collaboration, Josh, I'm sorry, uh, you were talking about collaboration. Well, yeah, John has, uh, has just asked, um, you know, if we're collecting uh, broadly uh, from things that um, really uh, there's an abundance of materials. How do we keep from collecting too much? Um, you know, because yes, uh, there there is such thing as too much stuff, um, and so the collaboration, um, both locally and uh, 
with other partner organizations, I think is how we establish the criteria for collecting. Yeah, Josh really keeps us on our toes in terms of what we're collecting, which we're grateful to, um, because it could be overwhelming. Um, and one of the things that happened was when this first began, um, we realized that if we were not in communication, we would wind up perhaps with um, you know 2,000 masks um, because that was the huge thing that everyone was um, writing to us about. And masks were definitely unique um, and different, each one um, in that early stages of the pandemic. And so in some ways, we actually sort of punted. We really wanted to listen to potential donors to hear what they were suggesting so that we could get an understanding. And I'll just take masks because that's an easy example to understand what were the big trends in mask making? What were the things that we should be looking out for? Um, how should we communicate across the division? So for example, uh, we knew that masks were being used. We knew, for example, that um, Dr. Fauci was wearing a Washington Nationals mask. Um, and obviously that tells a sports story. It tells also a medicine story, a political story as well. Um, so having that kind of discussion really helped us um, to see and understand um, what our colleagues were doing to come together to say, well, we'll collect this one. But it tells this story that is important to other divisions as well. And then really listening to our colleagues in different museums across the country, that was key as well. Um, we're very grateful. We've long been in contact, especially with our colleagues at medical museums and science museums. Um, and so we opened up a conversation with them very early on and got to hear from them, too. Um, they would tell us, well, we're, you know, suddenly we've been hearing about this. We think this is a really important story, maybe a national story. Um, should we collect it? Should you collect it? So it's it's been a lot of conversations. Um, so is, is there, um, sorry, were, were you going to add something? Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, the, um, so it seems like with every, with every situation, whether it's Hurricane Katrina or, or uh, COVID-19, you have to, you must set up, you, 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 maybe, maybe it's innate to your positions that you have a certain sort of base criteria and then you add to it based on yeah. Okay. Based on each different uh, context and how it differs, but it's interesting that you're working with other institutions and um, and and discovering who who is most capable or best suited for this or that, um, and 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 so ultimately your your collaborators determined that that your institution was best for for this one, right? And why not a why not a medical museum? <laughs> Right. And it can go either way. You know, we, as I said, um, every museum has a slightly different mission. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes we've been able to say to X museum, you should, um, you, this really fits better with your mission than with our mission. Um, but also, you know, what's helped us tremendously is we have, um, it is absolutely the most outstanding collection of medical objects uh, in the country. I would argue it's one of the top collections in the world. And mm -hmm. so we have collected around epidemics and pandemics in the past. Everyone always thinks of 1918, 1919, but there have been a lot of epidemics and pandemics in the past, and we have objects around many of those. And so that helps us. We knew we have a fabulous collection of vaccines, for example, so we knew collecting around vaccines would be key. Uh, we could look to what we'd collected around the polio vaccine when it emerged, and that helps us to understand well, we should collect similar objects 
mm-hmm. uh, around this vaccine or what did we miss when polio came around and what have we regretted? So what should we look for now? And really as much as anything, this um, you know rapid collecting is really a rapid deployment of a really focused collections plan that allows us to identify these areas where we have strengths and weaknesses and where we need to fill or, or bolster and, and can do that in um, sort of comparison to not only our own collection, but collections around the country. And, and that is perhaps what allows us to keep from gathering too much. I mean, goodness knows, I mean, right now everything is impacted by COVID, but we can't possibly acquire everything. And by having this targeted plan, we it allows us to look for specific items, to accept items um, that are offered to us opportunistically when they fit, but also to to say no uh, definitively or say, listen, we can't, but you really should talk with this museum or have you thought about documenting it in this way? Um, Or you might find that this is thoroughly covered by the following collection and and really um, this might not be of interest to anyone. Um, So that's the real power here. So there was a there was a good comment from from our one of our listeners that said, likely not all objects, uh, not all items collected rapidly are accessioned into the collection. How are those uh, items not kept disposed of, uh, transferred to another organization? So that's exactly what your point, uh, what you just said. You refer to another institution. So, um, but yeah, is there is there a calling after the fact that says you know we 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 acquired this but doesn't fit anymore? There'll always be a culling that's a part of the process. And certainly what's very hard for us as historians, um, I always say, despite what people think, historians are abysmal at predicting the future. Um, (laughs) So um, I think that we will need to go back and look deeply at what we have collected. Um, We may also realize, you know, 20 years from now that we missed uh, some important stories that have only come to light. Uh, or been understood. We're we're collecting in the midst of an event, um, which is really really difficult. And that does mean calling. It means that we have the potential to miss objects. It means that we should be collecting around that again. You know, we we collect still around pandemics that occurred in the 19th century. And my fantasy would be that we'd find objects around 18th century uh, epidemics or pandemics. But um, so we're always we will always be collecting around this event. It is so huge. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Josh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the um, best practices for this type of uh, collecting, but then relate it uh, specifically to COVID nineteen and if that has affected how you see or if it has changed some of your best practices. Well, I think, um, as with all collecting, we would like the the cleanest possible title and um, and transference to the museum. So wherever possible, if we're working with an individual or a group, uh, make sure that we're able to establish a proper deed of gift and and really uh, ensure that we're documenting everything as it comes in the door exactly as we would um, anything else that we would collect more. Perhaps, well, I don't want to say more deliberately because this is really deliberate collecting in all cases. Um, I think one thing that has emerged um, through maybe COVID-19, but a a lot of the other uh, collecting that we've um, been doing recently around the 
uh, the other pandemics we're facing of, of racism and um, and police brutality, uh, working with communities who are um, creating materials, uh, protest materials that sometimes we're collecting. Um, as we work with these communities, I think we're increasingly rethinking the notion of uh, collaboration and contribution and authorship of these materials as they come into the museum. And, and really, I think, still iterating um, the ways that we collaborate with groups that um, are working in tandem, but maybe not um, as a formal organization to understand how we can collect these materials, how they can contribute to the definition and description of these materials and how we can obviously apply our own filters over the long term, but still uh, respect the agency of those groups too as they have created those materials. So in, in a real way, this is still developing um, as our understandings of relationships to our constituents and uh, community groups change. Yeah. Um I want to take that a step further because uh, one of the things that's really intriguing to me is, um, and this is kind of for both of you, the the ethics that are involved in this. Like one of the seeming defining moments, especially earlier on, was say you know people weren't allowed to to visit relatives that were in the hospital and were probably going to die, and like this idea, like. Of a, of a zoom call and this is this is just one example that came to my mind like this would be like an important part of 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 the collection because it, it was such a ubiquitous thing and you know healthcare workers talked about doing this and uh but you know something as sticky as that is there how do you approach that and 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 i mean <laughs> what, what are the ethics that are the ethical issues and how do you resolve them uh in in this case I guess I would start by a couple really complex question I think you asked, John. Um, so I'm going to give you multiple <laughs> answers. Please. Um, so first of all, one of the things um, is that we always have to be cognizant of federal laws, especially around healthcare. Um, HIPAA, which actually requires um, certain rigor and certain um, uh, restrictions to be placed on medical records and medical information. So we need to abide by that. And that's actually very helpful for us. Um, the second thing is that we also have to, um, I think with these really difficult um, issues, we have to be wait for people to come to us. I do not think we should ever go uh, to individuals who are dealing with this um, mm -hmm. to ask them uh, for right. this or these materials. I think that is really uh, has really uh, bad uh, potential for, for real problems and, and real great insensitivity. And the third thing I would say is that one of the things um, that I think sometimes is different about this event is we, the curators, are caught in the pandemic ourselves. Um, so we, the curators, have also experienced deaths of parents, um, family members, um, and that shapes our view and how we approach and think about this. Um, it's very rare, I think, that the curator themselves, that they are a part of the unfolding story. And yet right. we, um, and so I think that has also shaped our 
sensitivity, our feelings about what we should be collecting and how. Right. And in, in, in this case, as you mentioned, this is there, since this literally affects everyone, there's no way to tell a fully unbiased story. Right. Um, so uh, only, only a generation from now will, will it be possible? Possibly. <laughs> so um, I, uh, there's, well, it's complicated. So uh, let's just see, uh, let's check in with uh, Robin and see if there's anything uh, happening in the chat if people want to uh, make comments or questions. Sure. Um, yeah. So right now it looks like um, someone posted that looks just in general when it comes to collection, that looks like a really challenging record keeping and high pressure for registrars to do the collection. Can you talk a bit about how you handle storage, temporary custody and temporary numbering? Because as we all know, as registrars, we like to get into the nuts and bolts of how to actually do all these jobs. Um, and then also kind of related to that question, how do you make sure staff are taking care of themselves while working on such an emotionally heavy situations and objects? So it's kind of a twofold question right now. Um, well, uh, speaking to uh, temporary custody, I mean, we we really apply all of the, uh, the same uh, standards for uh, temporary custody receipt. Uh, as we bring these materials in, uh, as we do for, for everything else that might come in on sort of a provisional review by a curator. Um, we've been really, honestly, the deliberation that has been um, essential to these collecting initiatives, especially around COVID-19, has allowed us to become much more deliberate with the materials we bring in, where we... Um, have actually over the last two years increased the um, the threshold for uh, description and rationalization of materials before the point of ingest into the museum where we're actually becoming a lot cleaner with um, not having to use temporary numbers, but actually deliberately bringing in these materials under specific accession numbers that have been uh, requested, vetted, and approved in advance of coming to the museum. So in many ways, this has this creates and um, and strengthens the notion that we need to be deliberate in our collecting as we move forward. Um, so um, maybe counterintuitively, this this isn't something that uh, really, uh, we'd give a registrar heartburn. Uh, it's not as, you know, fly by the, the seat of the pants as it might be. Um, that's not to say that it, it's not difficult. Certainly when, um, if we collect from an event, um, we do frequently bring in a lot of materials that we'll end up culling later um, and figuring out exactly what we're going to accession and, um, or not accession and make available for transfer or what we're going to accession so that it can be used for exchange uh, can be complicated, but really it's, it's no different than much of the collecting that we do. Um, yeah. And um, Lexi, can you, um, can you speak to the point about, uh, to the question, how do you make sure staff are taking care of themselves while working in such an emotionally heavy uh, situation or with emotionally heavy objects? Yeah, it is really, really difficult. Um, and I think that the thing that has helped the most um, has for us uh, to um, be candid with how we are feeling 
uh, and why, um, and to um, take frequent breaks. I am a strong uh, urger of my colleagues and people whom I oversee um, to take frequent breaks. This is very difficult. It is very painful um, for us. Uh, and at different points, I think people really do need to walk away. The one thing about museum work is um, we are not actually, you know, in a place where urgency um, is key. Yes, I know, Josh, you would like us to finish things and get things cleared, but sometimes um, it is more important that our staff take breaks um, uh, and that we encourage people to understand the importance of mental health um, and to give people guidance as to where they can obtain help. help. Um, and that's been really key. We're very fortunate that we work for the federal government, which has very strong resources uh, in this regard. Um, but it is very difficult. Yeah. And this. Oh. No, no, go ahead. Uh, this was absolutely a challenge, as um, especially in 2020, when we were really still in a um, immense uncertainty where the museum was still closed. In many cases, it was registrarial teams who were coming into the building to support this collecting, to, to be at the objects processing facility to receive these materials. Conservators coming in to evaluate materials and do condition reporting as things were coming in um, to support what had become remote work for most of our colleagues became very real and um, thorny questions about personal safety in order to support uh, the very important work that we all wanted to do in the museum. And, and it's still something that we're, we're working through as we, um, as everyone is across the country and in every industry with, you know, some teams of folks who can work remotely, who, you know, live in their office. Um, and, and others who, who really do have to be on site because when it comes down to it, we are a place-based industry that handles actual objects and somebody has to be there. Somebody has to hold it. Somebody has to care for it. Um, and, and so knowing that um, our colleagues are being so thoughtful and so intentional really does go a long way in, in helping everyone really feel part of a process. You, you've segued perfectly uh, to my next um, chapter in this discussion, which is teams. And uh, I want to talk about the team that you set up for, for this and the roles that everyone has. But then I, I want to have the second half of that be about uh, your professional colleagues, you know, in other institutions and, um, and how you all relate. But yeah, first and foremost, can you talk a little bit about uh, the members of your team? And is this like a, a regular team that you always have that was in place for a while in terms of title, in terms of job description? Um, who do you have on your team? So in our division, I oversee the division of medicine and science. Um, so I have uh, collections um, specialists and also curators who work in the history of science and medicine. And so when this began, um, we began talking as a division uh, about could this be the pandemic that they've been telling us about? So it was originally a very small group, really, our division, uh, primarily the historians of medicine, although we also um, brought in our colleagues who do the history of science as well. And then when things became um, much bigger and everyone came home and the WHO had officially declared the pandemic, we put together 
uh, task force within the museum that included someone from each of our four curatorial divisions, um, <clears throat> a curator from those and collection specialist as well um, on that. And we reviewed and looked at um, for several months all of the requests that we were getting. Um, and that was incredibly helpful, um, that conversation. Um, ultimately, um, we did disband that group, um, and now in each division, they do um, review. We we review, for example, in medicine and science, um, we have it's almost a biweekly, every other week meeting because we get so many um, suggestions of donations. Um, so we meet, we discuss each item, um, decide what we would like to do, and then send a response, and if necessary, alert colleagues at other institutions by simply saying we received this, we've referred them to you um, as well. So it's still a very collaborative um, effort, and we do communicate across our divisions as well um, still. So, and then, and at some point, do you say, I want to work with Josh, or is he assigned to you? How does that work? Uh, you mean sort of like when 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 it's time to get your collections specialist on board? <laughs> you is it is it like oh Josh is the one that works with medicine and science, or you know, oh. is it um, you know something more formal or less formal? I'm very fortunate. We have um, three wonderful collection specialists who have an expertise in the history of medicine who work directly in our division. Um, and so they have been really integral. They're a part of our team that makes the decisions. I was saying we have a division and um, group of just historians of medicine, um, the curators of medicine and the collection specialists who focus on medicine. And we are the ones who are making the decisions. So um, it's it's not a case of bringing in our collection specialists. They're they're at the very beginning as we right. look everything. Um, gotcha. But if it were someone, if it were like, say Hurricane Katrina, for example, the uh, I don't know who the specialist would be for that, but the the, the curators that would be dealing with, um, say those rapid response acquisitions would already sort of understand that should something happen especially hurricanes that happen all the time, um, you know, we're the ones responsible for obtaining and, uh, and, and setting the criteria, setting the standards. And then they already have a collection specialist or group of collection specialists that, that they're regularly working with that would be sort of charged with that. So your teams are somewhat set. Our teams, yeah, our collection specialists are embedded in our divisions, which is- yeah, yeah, yeah. As, yeah, it really means that it's a conversation that we're always having, always. Um, Josh, I think you're muted. Oh, still. <laughs> okay. There Third we time. Go. All yeah. right. Um, and of course, we have a central collection service at the museum okay. that supports all of the divisions for the materials that are coming in, the conservation, the registrarial work. Um, that really is is agnostic to um, the uh, the curatorial specialization. Right. Gotcha. That that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it's essentially like having the the registrar for European paintings uh, that's already affiliated. So. Um, mm -hmm. My my dense head will get it, so <laughs> so so let's let's broaden this uh, a little bit more. And who do you um, who are your your colleagues that that you deal with uh, in in museums around the country? 
I mean, maybe it's all museums. I don't know. <laughs> or, but is it is it like a a, a semi-defined group? So there is a semi-defined group, um, the history of medicine. There are actually multiple um, museums that focus on the history of medicine or the history of science. And so um, we try to work closely with those folks. We know who they are. We know what their missions are, too. So, for example, we knew that the Civil War, the Museum of Civil War Medicine is not going to be collecting around COVID. Um, so we knew that um, much as we want, uh, really uh, think our colleagues there are great, we knew that they would not be a part of the conversation. So. <laughs> Um, we are looking at um, organizations like the Mütter Museum, which is in uh, Philadelphia, um, the Dittrich Museum, which is in Ohio and focuses on the history of medicine. Um, the CDC has its own museum as well. That's in Atlanta. We work um, not just with our colleagues at museums, but also um, federal agencies have their own uh, collections often and historians and historians offices. Um, so we've been working with colleagues at the FDA. They have a fabulous collection, especially of um, medical devices, really incredible ones that have been banned by the FDA, I think are most interesting, obviously. Um, but uh, so we work with them as well. But we also began running a series that was called Pandemic Perspectives, and we brought together folks from other museums to talk about what they were doing with COVID collecting. And that included um, especially folks in our Smithsonian Affiliates program. So that broadened, um, and we began to speak to museums that deal with local audiences. And, and does that collaboration work both ways? They contact you and they say, yeah, we've got this. You should be. Yeah. Yeah small like silver linings that have come out of the pandemic. And I think one of them has been that we really have ratcheted up dramatically conversations that we have with our colleagues at other institutions mm -hmm. um, and they too among themselves. And I think that has been wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Robin, I want to check in with you uh, and uh, see what's going on in the chat. Can you, sure. uh, is there anything? Yeah, well, one person asked the question, have you talked to your colleagues in the National Park Service who have collect, um, who collect the objects up at the Vietnam War Memorial? So I think it's kind of that wider question. You guys just talked about speaking to Smithsonian folks, but do you also speak to colleagues over at NPS or other groups in general? Oh, certainly. We, um, we're always in talks with our colleagues at Park Service, at the, uh, the uh, curator of the Senate's office, the uh, Capitol Visitor Center, um, especially our colleagues in our political history division have robust connections uh, with uh, institutions around town and around the country at presidential museums and, and with the park service. Um, and then the other question was, do you regularly do contemporary collecting, like collecting for COVID-19? So kind of in your experience, has this been the first time you have done rapid collection or have you had other cases of rapid collecting? So oh, we've, Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, because this morning I was just looking over some material uh, from when we were collecting around Zika as Zika was unfolding. Um, and there again, you see that in not inability, but the difficulty we had in understanding what Zika would mean um, and what it would be. Um, so, yes, we are collecting around contemporary events all the time. It is really difficult, though. Um, but so so here's here's a question. Um, so in the case of Zika, for example, that, you know, it, 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 
it it didn't have nearly the the breadth of of this of course i mean few things will but um but it didn't have a huge presence on it was sort of like oh it's in tropical areas and it and it's it's it wasn't as 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 big of um uh, a presence in in most people's daily life but so but you still obviously you collected regarding that but so is that something that you maybe it ties in i mean obviously you have some sort of a history of uh, of medicine and pandemics and things like that but is does that are you finding i i would imagine you're finding out after the fact in many cases the the broader context for a lot of these things and and maybe zika has a a bigger role to play than we than it felt at the time but we found out about it during COVID-19. I'm sorry, that was not phrased so well, but uh, anyway, I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I think the point that you're making, um, John, is, you know, sort of that idea that I was saying that I think historians are not so great at anticipating the future. I would say no one is good at anticipating the future. I want to just like say historians, but no one is good at anticipating the future. Even, you know, public health experts, they, they just don't know there's so many factors and Zika is a perfect example. There were cases in the United States, um, but was this going to become a major uh, epidemic or even a pandemic? Um, we didn't know. And the public health folks that we were speaking to, and we do try to consult with them to ask them questions. We ask them, you know, do you think this has the potential to flare up and become a large scale story? And, you know, they were saying, we don't know. Sometimes they can give us, you know, data, well, this is not very transmissible. So we, we don't think so, or this is highly transmissible. So we think so. Um, but it is a really tricky issue for us um, and I think it's why, you know, we constantly have to be looking at what we collect. Um, and we are always going to make mistakes with um, rapid response collecting. We, you can't help it. Um, mm-hmm. Right. We're collecting for the future and we don't know the future. And we are having these discussions when, when something happens in the world and that someone has a question or says, I have an opportunity um, to collect here. And and sometimes we specifically decide not to, to decide that, listen, this is something that don't think this is an inflection point. It's already well represented in the collection. We don't need to bolster with this event. And you can know, I interrupt you right have, quick? And, and yeah. I just want to ask, do you have, can you provide examples of that? Or is that hush hush? Um, Things that you didn't decide to pursue. Well, I, I wouldn't want to hurt feelings by uh, <laughs> suggesting that something wasn't um, important in the scope of history. But yeah, I, yeah. I think we've had many discussions around several uh, over the last several years of uh, flare ups of, uh, of gun violence, of um, mass casualty events where, you know, um, we have had questions about whether or not we wanted to collect around one event or another and and have frequently decided not to, um, just because, uh, I mean, some of the ethical questions about going in and saying, oh my goodness, you're experiencing as a community this terrible event, can you give us stuff? I mean, that that's obviously not something we want to do, but also how that relates to our mission, uh, to the stories we're telling and the stories we're able to tell through uh, a depth of collections. And, and so those are some things that we have elected not to uh, collect around. Um, yeah. yeah. Thanks for, for, I know it was like, it's a little bit dicey, but um, I appreciate you answering it. Um, 
So you, you kind of set it up to talk about sort of the last, um, the last area I wanted to, to address, which is, uh, moving forward. Uh, what, what are some of the lasting effects that, um, this rapid response collection will have, um, like, is there a change of best practices? Is there, is it, is, 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 is anything new as a result of, of this specific collection? I def definitely would say, and I don't know what Josh would say, but I think what's new is an aggressive outreach and discussion with other museums. Uh, mm -hmm. That I think is, is, you know, it's not that we didn't do it before we did. Uh, but I think now it is just on a much greater scale. Um, and we also have been able to, to see our colleagues, you know, Zoom has been wonderful in that way. Um, and that enables us to feel we know them. And that means that the conversation is easier and more consistent. Um, and I think that has been a really good change that has occurred. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we, we're definitely building tools within the museum that will allow us to do all of our collecting better in the future, the, um, really using the, uh, the innovations of a distributed workplace uh, to make sure that we're documenting better, that we're able to plan better. Our, our workflows for bringing materials into the museum are much improved. Uh, I know we have um, had to create tools for the rapid collection of media. Um, which is really going to enhance our ability to collect all media, um, digital media over time. And, and so that'll be a, a great outcome. Um, and I think, yeah, these communication pathways, uh, this has shown that we really need to embrace the collaborative nature of uh, collecting around these events for, for maybe not even events moving forward, but everything we do with our collecting and recognizing that our role as caretakers of a national collection isn't necessarily just holding on to the objects that we've managed to accumulate, but also to create the connections and the relationships between museums around the country um, to, to really document American history in a distributed fashion. Yeah. Um, while, while you were both talking, I had another thought, which was because of course things are different and every, every, every time someone faces a situation, years pass between major events and context change, but how, you know, we're, 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 we're experiencing this at a very, you know, even if, if there were no COVID-19, we're at a very divisive time in our, in our own history. And how does the context of, of the country, because this is a natural national collection and you're based in Washington, DC. And how does that political context affect your work? I mean, I assume you're trying to not let it, but how, how does this, how does this factor in? Um, I, I actually, I want to, I'd love to hear what Lexi has to say about this. I might give an example. Um, what was it in 2000? It was June of 2016, uh, 17, uh, June of 17, we opened an exhibition about uh, immigration um, in the United States. And this opened, what, five months after um, 
the uh, beginning of the last administration, which foregrounded immigration and an objection to immigration as, as a major sort of policy push. Uh, President Trump obviously uh, came into office talking a lot about immigration. Uh, and then five months later, we opened a uh, an exhibit about it. And of course, that exhibit had been in the works for seven or eight years before uh, it opened. It wasn't necessarily uh, intended to be timely. It just uh, happened to be so. And I think what the political circumstance, the division around that topic meant is that we had to be much, much better. Um, we really had to be certain uh, as historians uh, that everything that we said was uh, was vetted and balanced and fair. Um, and that the collections that we were acquiring and um, portraying in that space were, were the same. Um, so I think we're all aware of, of this context. And, and I don't think any of us would presume that we can't be part of it or that we're somehow outside the fray or neutral. Um, but because of our awareness, we are much more intentional. And I would hope that our work is more durable because of it. Can I, can, before you answer, Lexi, I want to ask, when you're, you're talking about your awareness, is that aware on a, we're talking about this all the time in our meetings and our uh, deciding on acquisitions, or is it ever, it's a below the surface awareness that we know that, or is it just both, <laughs> you know? I, I think it's both. Um, yeah. I mean, that, I, I mean, I, as a scholar, I know that I'm aware of it, but I also know that we have a, um, an actual process through which our um, exhibition and public programs are run through a, um, a very high level review in uh, central Smithsonian offices that, I mean, so it, it's really on, on both ends of the spectrum and probably throughout. Right, right. Lexi, do you have a comment on yeah, I'd just add um, and, and uh, underscore what Josh was saying. I mean, there is also, we, we need to be very, very meticulous and very careful with what we say. And for us uh, in the Division of Medicine and Science, um, we have to be very careful. We're not um, physicians or scientists ourselves. Uh, well, one of my colleagues actually, <laughs> but the most of us are not. And so, you know, we have to be meticulous to ensure not just that we have the history uh, correct, but also the science uh, and the medicine. And that I think the stakes are higher um, yeah. and have been uh, in the past few years for us. Um, so. Congratulations. Your job just got so hard. <laughs> so much harder. <laughs> But that makes I, it I, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, I mean, uh, imagine like I, 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 I'm struggling. I, but think of uh, someone's job that just like you know, at a moment's notice, it just became you know several times more difficult, and um, you know, it doesn't happen that often, right? <laughs> so, um, I mean, kudos to you for taking it on. Um, I would also say though, it's not often because medicine, our lives are so different um, from our ancestors just a hundred years ago, the world they lived in. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not often that people are, think about the history of medicine. It's not something that's taught in schools. Um, and it's not something we, we think about. We think about elections and oh, there were elections in the past. People don't really think about what it was like to live in a family where your sister died of TB, uh, your mother died, you know, of, um, diphtheria, um, 
so on and so on. And we we don't think about that. And so I will say that I think what's fascinating about the last few years has been that people suddenly have an awareness um, that medicine has played a role in shaping the world in which we live in. Yeah. Um, and that was not there before. Right. No, I mean that, and and that will be one of the, if, if I'm going to predict and uh, wade into that turbulent water, um, but uh, you know, that will be one of the, the lasting impressions. I mean, everyone's an armchair epidemiologist now, and uh, that was just certainly not the case. I mean, this was not on, um, you know, maybe it was on my grandmother who experienced uh, the, the flu epidemic in 1919, but uh, you know, not, not for most of us. So, you know, now, now we're just so much aware of all of these things. Um, before we, uh, before we end, I want to refer back to Robin and see if there's anything, uh, looming in the chat to, uh, round out this conversation. Sure. And, um, just to go back to what you just said, John, I just remember looking at my parents' polio scars on their arms from their things and kind of thinking like, we'll never need anything like this. And now I have regular conversations with my 12 year olds about vaccinations, which I never thought I would have. So it's kind of a different world we live in nowadays for sure. Wow. Um, A question that just popped up, how do you prepare your rapid responders for emergencies while they are out in the field? What PPE or specialized training do you provide to the folks who are on the ground? Right now, we don't really have folks out on the ground collecting. Um, And so um, it's been a question that we have fortunately not really had to deal with. Um, Obviously, when people are in the museum, um, we do uh, require that they wear masks um, and keep and social distance and so on. Uh, But we've been very lucky. They're not actually in hospitals or any place um, where this could be dangerous. We we don't want them to be in those places um, for two reasons. One is because of the danger to them. And the second is obviously, um, and I think this goes back to that difficulty that we have around collecting around something like this. Um, you know, we don't want to have our curators uh, interfering with the work of uh, people in hospitals or funeral parlors or any of these places, because that work is so demanding for those individuals. And, and, and it could potentially be really, really difficult if we put our curators or collections folk uh, at risk in those places as well. Wow. The, the level of consideration that goes into this is just, it's mind blowing. I mean, it, it, it's like you're a, you know, a photojournalist documenting a disaster, but it's through objects and um, all of those same ethics apply. So um, we, I mean, I, if I, if I can speak for most people, I'm really appreciative that someone's doing it. And uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be a, a long standing, what's the word? It's, it's obviously it's, it's a project that will endure, but also hopefully the legacy will endure. Um, and, uh, and with it, the, the lessons that we have learned through it. So um any uh, final comments on the work that you do or something that you want to impart to uh, the listeners um, that uh, maybe you learned throughout this process or through rapid response collecting in general? Well, I would just say one thing, which is um, that, you know, you're a part of the story 
We work in museums, but we too are a part of this story. And I would really encourage your, um, everyone who's listening, um, if you feel you have an object or a story that you feel is really important, um, to contact us. Um, if it's not right for our museum, we can put you in touch with the correct place because we really want to document a range of stories. And the more people we hear from, the better we can ensure that we are telling as much of this huge story as we can. Yeah. And how do you make sure you cover the whole story? Can I, sorry, this is a little bit, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. But the more we hear from people, the yeah. more we get an understanding of all these different angles. I don't yeah. know all the museums in America or even the world. And we have been in touch with our colleagues outside the U.S. too. Right. We can't tell this story. It's too huge. But if we hear from a lot of people, we can try to tell as, as much of the story as possible. Right. Right. Josh, any final, uh, final words? Uh, no, I don't think so. I just wanted to thank you for this opportunity. It's been a, a delight talking with you and thinking about this, sort of getting the space to step away from actually doing it and, and managing everything coming in to, to think critically about it and, and talk about the good work we've done. Well, we appreciate you actually sharing it. So, uh, and and the work you do, like like I said, I mean, this is going to be um, a, a real legacy to the country and to the world. So, um, we appreciate it. Um, final thoughts from the chat, Robin, or anything as we close? No, that's about it. But we want to again thank you guys for talking about this. I think a lot of institutions are dealing with this on rapid collecting, and it's good to hear how. Um, both the big guys are dealing with it and also just kind of how people are approaching this entire field, which I know when I went to school in the O's, it was not talked about. So I think it's really important to hear about how people are approaching this issue for sure. So um, before we, uh, before we uh, sign off, what uh, what's the best way to reach out to you? If uh, we do have, uh, if, if someone listening has information or objects that they want to run across your desk. Looks like Lexi's frozen. Josh, do you have that answer? We can, we can also um, include this in the, in the description of, of the episode on the podcast and on YouTube. Yeah, we can send a link. Uh, although if you go to our uh, website, AmericanHistory.si.edu, you'll find a link to that describes some of our COVID collecting. It gives a link to the uh, the forms that you could submit and really talks about some of the, uh, the ongoing programs we have around this and, and many of the other sort of topical areas that we're we're constantly working around. Great, thank you so much. We'll uh, we'll include that in the description as this goes out. Um, sorry, we lost Lexi, but uh, Josh, thanks again uh, to everyone listening. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening live, participating in the chat. Uh, as usual, we'll put this out uh, as a podcast later on in the week, uh, available in all the typical podcast areas, uh, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify. That was the last one. And um, Robin, any other final ARCS announcements? That's it. Just keep an eye on our website um, for upcoming programming notes, and we will see you all next month, next month, next month, next month, next month.